These things being thus premised in general concerning the nature of the dominion of sin, we shall now proceed to our principal inquiry, namely, whether sin have dominion in us or not, in which we may know whether we are under the law or under grace, or what is the state of our souls towards God. An inquiry this is, which is very necessary for some to make, and for all to have rightly determined in their minds, from scripture and experience, for on that determination depends all our solid peace. Sin will be in us, it will lust, fight, and entice us. But the great question is to our peace and comfort, whether it has dominion over us or not. First, we do not inquire concerning them in whom the reign of sin is absolute and easily discernible, if not to themselves yet to others. Such there are who visibly yield their members instruments of unrighteousness to sin. Romans 6.13 Sin reigns in their mortal bodies, and they openly obey it in the lusts thereof. Verse 12 They are avowedly servants of sin to death. Verse 16 And are not ashamed of it. The shore of their countenance does witness against them, and they declare their sin of Sodom. They hide it not. Isaiah 3, nine. Such are those described, Ephesians 4.18 and 19, and such the world is filled with, such as, being under the power of darkness and enmity against God, do act them in opposition to all serious godliness, and in the service of various lusts. There is no question concerning their state. They cannot themselves deny that it is so with them. I speak not for the liberty of censoring, but for the easiness of judging. Those who openly wear sin's livery may well be esteemed to be sin's servants. They shall not fail to receive sin's wages. Let them at present bear it never so high, and despise all manner of convictions, they will find it bitterness in the latter end, Isaiah 50, verse 11, Ecclesiastes 11, 9. Secondly, but there are many in whom the case is dubious and not easily to be determined. For on the one hand they may have sundry things in them which may seem repugnant to the reign of sin, but indeed are not inconsistent with it. All arguments and pleas from them in their vindication may fail them on a trial. And on the other hand, there may be some in whom the effectual working of sin may be so great and perplexing as to argue that it has the dominion, when indeed it has not, but is only a stubborn rebel. The things of the first sort, which seem destructive of and inconsistent with the dominion of sin, but indeed are not, may be referred to five heads. First, illumination and knowledge and spiritual gifts, with convictions of good and evil, of all known duties and sins. This is that which some men live in a perpetual rebellion against, in one instance or another. Number two, a change in the affections, given a temporary delight in religious duties, with some constancy in their observation. This also is found in many who are yet evidently under the power of sin and spiritual darkness. Number three, a performance of many duties, both moral and evangelical, for the substance of them, and an abstinence out of conscience from many sins. So it was with the young man in the gospel, who yet lacked what was necessary to free him from the dominion of sin, Matthew 19, 20-23. 
Number four, repentance for sin committed. This is that which most secure themselves by, and a blessed security it is when it is gracious, evangelical, a fruit of faith, comprising the return of the whole soul to God. But there is that which is legal, partial, respecting particular sins only, which is not pleadable in this case. Ahab was no less under the dominion of sin when he had repented him than he was before. And Judas repented him before he hanged himself. Number five. Promises and resolutions against sin in the future. But the goodness of many of these things is as a morning cloud and as the early dew it goeth away. As in the prophet Hosea 6.4. Where there is a concurrence of these things in any, they have good hopes at least that they are not under the dominion of sin, nor is it easy to convince them that they are. And they may be, so behave themselves herein, as that it is not consistent with Christian charity to pronounce them so to be. Howbeit, the fallacy that is in these things has been detected by many, and much more is by all required to evidence the sincerity of faith and holiness. No man, therefore, can be acquitted by pleas taken from them as to his subjection to the reign of sin. The things of the second sort, whence arguments may be taken to prove the dominion of sin in any person, which yet will not certainly do it, are those which we shall now examine, and we must observe number one. That where sin has a dominion, it does indeed rule in the whole soul and all the faculties of it. It is a vicious habit in all of them, corrupting them in their several natures and powers with that corruption in which they are capable. So in the mind of darkness and vanity, the will of spiritual deceit and perverseness, the heart of stubbornness and sensuality, sin in its power reaches to and affects them all. But number two, it does evidence its dominion and is to be tried by us acting in the distinct faculties of the mind, in the frame of the heart, and in the course of the life. These are those which we shall examine. First, those which render the case dubious, and then those that clearly determine it on the part of sin. I shall not, therefore, at present give positive evidences of men's freedom from the dominion of sin, but only consider the arguments that lie against them, and examine how far they are conclusive, or how they may be defeated. And, number one, when sin has in any instance possessed the imagination, and thereby engaged a cogitative faculty in its service, it is a dangerous symptom of its rule or dominion. Sin may exercise its rule in the mind, fancy, and imagination, where bodily strength or opportunity gives no advantage for its outward perpetration. In them the desire of sin may be enlarged as hell, and the satisfaction of lust taken in with greediness. Pride and covetousness and sensuality may reign and rage in the mind by corrupt imaginations when their outward exercise is shut up by circumstances of life. The first way in which sin acts itself or coins its motions and inclinations in two acts is by the imagination, Genesis 6.5. The continual evil figments of the heart are as a bubbling of corrupt waters from a corrupted fountain. 
The imaginations intended are the fixing of the mind on the objects of sin or sinful objects by continual thoughts with delight and complacency. They are the minds purveying for the satisfaction of the flesh and the lusts thereof. Romans 13:14, in which evil thoughts come to lodge, to abide, to dwell in the heart. Jeremiah 4:14. 4, this is the first and proper effect of that vanity of mind in which the soul is alienated from the life of God. The mind being turned off from its proper object, with a dislike of it, applies itself by its thoughts and imaginations to the pleasures and advantages of sin, seeking in vain to recover the rest and satisfaction which they have forsaken in God himself. They follow after lying vanities and forsake their own mercies. Jonah 2.8 And when they give themselves up to a constant internal converse with the desires of the flesh, the pleasures and advantages of sin, with delight and approbation, sin may reign triumphantly in them, though no appearance be made of it in their outward conversation. Such are they also who have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. Their hearts being filled with the litter of ungodly lusts, as the Apostle declares, 2 Timothy 3.5. And there are three evils with respect whereunto sin doth exercise its reigning power in the imagination, in an especial manner. Number one, pride, self-elation, desire of power and greatness. It is affirmed of the prince of Tyrus that he said he was a god and sat in the seat of God, Ezekiel 28.2. And the like foolish thoughts are ascribed to the king of Babylon, Isaiah 14.13 and 14. None of the children of men can attain so great glory, power, and dominion in this world, but that in their imaginations and desires they can infinitely exceed what they do enjoy, like him who wept that he had not another world to conquer. They have no bounds but to be as God, yea, to be God, which was the first design of sin in the world. And there is none so poor and low but by the imaginations he can lift up and exalt himself almost into the place of God. This vanity and madness God reproves in his discourse with Job, chapter 49 to 14. And there is nothing more germane and proper to the original deprivation and corruption of our natures than this self-exaltation and foolish thoughts and imaginations because it first came upon us through a desire of being as God. Herein, therefore, may sin exercise its dominion in the minds of men, yea, in the empty wind and vanity of these imaginations, with those that follow, consists the principal part of the deceitful ways of sin." The ways of men cannot satisfy themselves with what sins they can actually commit, but in these imaginations they rove endlessly, finding satisfaction in their renovation and variety. Isaiah 57.10 Number 2. Sensuality and uncleanness of life. It is said of some that they have eyes full of adultery, and that they cannot cease from sin, 2 Peter 2.14. That is, their imaginations are continually working about the objects of their unclean lusts. These they think of night and day, admiring themselves in all filth continually. Jude calls them filthy dreamers, defiling the flesh, verse 8. 
They live within a constant pleasing dream by their vile imaginations, even when they cannot accomplish their lustful desires. For such imaginations cannot be better expressed than by dreams, wherein men satisfy themselves with the supposed acting of what they do not. Hereby do many wallow in the mire of uncleanness all their days, and for the most part are never wanting unto the effects of it when they have opportunity and advantage, and by this means the most cloistered recluses may live in constant adulteries in which multitudes of them become actually the sinks of uncleanness. This is that which, in the root of it, is severely condemned by our Savior, Matthew 5.28. Number 3. Unbelief, distrust, and hard thoughts of God are some of the same kind. These will sometimes so possess the imaginations of men as to keep them off from all delight in God, to put them on contrivances of fleeing from Him, which is a peculiar case not here to be spoken to. And these in the like ways may sin exercise its dominion in the soul by the mind and its imagination. It may do so when no demonstration is made of it in the outward conversation. For by this means the minds of men are defiled, and then nothing is clean, all things are impure to them. Titus 1.15 Their minds being thus defiled do defile all things to them, their enjoyments, their duties, all they have and all that they do. But yet all failing and sin in this kind doth not prove absolutely that sin has the dominion in the mind that it had before. Something of this vice and evil may be found in them that are freed from the reign of sin, and there will be so until the vanity of our minds is perfectly cured and taken away which will not be in this world. Wherefore, I shall name the exceptions that may be put in against the title of sin to dominion in the soul, notwithstanding the continuance in some measure of this work of the imagination and coining evil figments in the heart. And, number one, this is no evidence of the dominion of sin, where it is occasional arising from the prevalency of some present temptation. Take an instance in the case of David. I no way doubt but that in his temptation with Bathsheba his mind was possessed with defiling imaginations. Wherefore, on his repentance, he not only prays for the forgiveness of his sin, but cries out with all fervency that God would create a clean heart in him. Psalm 51.10 He was sensible not only of the defilement of his person, but his actual adultery, and his heart by impure imaginations. So it may be in the case of other temptations. Whilst men are entangled with any temptation, of what sort soever it be, it will multiply thoughts about it in the mind, yet its whole power consists in a multiplication of evil imaginations. By them it blinds the mind, draws it off from the consideration of its duty, and enticeth it unto a full conception of sin. James 1, 14 and 15. Wherefore, in this case of a prevalent temptation which may befall a true believer, the corrupt working of the imagination doth not prove the dominion of sin. 
If it be inquired how the mind may be freed and cleared of these perplexing, defiling imaginations which arise from the urgency of some present temptation, suppose about earthly affairs or the like, I say it will never be done by the most strict watch and resolution against them, nor by the most resolute rejection of them. They will return with new violence and new pretenses, though the soul has promised itself a thousand times that they should not do so. There is but one way for the cure of this distemper, and this is a thorough mortification of the lust that feeds them and is fed by them. It is no purpose to shake off the fruit in this case unless we dig up the root. Every temptation designs the satisfaction of some lust of the flesh or of the mind. These evil thoughts and imaginations are the working of the temptation in the mind. There is no riddance of them, no conquest to be obtained over them, but by subduing the temptation, and no subduing the temptation, but by the mortification of the lust, whose satisfaction it is designed to. This course the Apostle directs to Colossians 3, 5. That which he enjoins is that we would not set our minds on the things of the earth in opposition to the things above, that is, that we would not feel our imaginations and thereby our affections with them. For lack of the wisdom and knowledge hereof, or for lack of its practice, through a secret unwillingness to come up to a full mortification of sin, some are galled and perplexed, yea, and defiled with foolish and vain imaginations all their days. And although they prove not the dominion of sin, yet they will deprive the soul of that peace and comfort which otherwise it might enjoy. But yet there is much spiritual skill and diligence required to discover what is the true root and spring of the foolish imaginations that may at any time possess the mind, for they lie deep in the heart, that heart which is deep and deceitful, and so are not easily discoverable. There are many other pretenses of them. They do not directly bespeak that pride or those unclean lusts which they proceed from, but they make many other pretenses and feign other ends. But the soul that is watchful and diligent may trace them to their original. And if such thoughts are strictly examined at any time, what is their designed, whose work they do, what makes them so busy in the mind, they will confess the truth, both whence they came and what is it they aim at. Then is a mind guided to its duty, which is the extermination of the lust which they would make provision for. Such imaginations are no evidence of the dominion of sin, in what degree soever they are, where they are afflictive, where they are a burden to the soul which it groans under and would be delivered from. They are not proofs of the dominion of sin, where there is a prevalent detestation of the lust from whence they proceed, and whose promotion they design maintained in the heart and mind. And all such various imaginations are but mere effects of the incurable vanity and instability of our minds, for these administer continual occasion to random thoughts. But for the most part, as we observed before, they are employed in the service of some lust and tend to the satisfaction of it. They are that which is prohibited by the Apostle, Romans 13.14, make not provision for the flesh. 
and this may be discovered on strict examination. Now when the mind is fixed in a constant detestation of that sin, whereunto they lead, as it is sin against God, with a firm resolution against it, in all circumstances that may occur, no proof can thence be taken for the dominion of sin. Also, sometimes evil thoughts are the immediate injections of Satan, and they are, on many accounts, most terrible to the soul. Usually, for the matter of them, they are dreadful and oft-times blasphemous, and as to the manner of their entrance into the mind, it is, for the most part, surprising, furious, and irresistible. From such thoughts, many have concluded themselves to be absolutely under the power of sin and Satan. But they are, by certain rules and infallible signs, discoverable from whence they do proceed, and on that discovery all pretenses to the dominion of sin in them must disappear. But how may I know whether sin reigns in me or not? It is a sign of the dominion of sin when in any instance it hath a prevalency in our affections. Yea, they are the throne of sin where it acts its power. Where sin has a prevalency and predominancy in our affections, there it has a dominion in the whole soul. The rule is given to us to this purpose, 1 John 2.15. We are obliged to love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul, and therefore if there be in us a predominant love to anything else, whereby it is preferred to God, it must be from the prevalency of a principle of sin in us. And so it is with respect to all other affections. If we love anything more than God, as we do if we will not part with it for his sake, be it as a right eye or a right hand to us, if we take more satisfaction and complacency in it, and cleave more to it in our thoughts and minds than to God, as men commonly do in their lusts, interests, enjoyments, and relations, if we trust more to it as to a supply of our lacks than to God, as most do to the world, if our desires are enlarged and our diligence heightened in seeking after and attaining other things more than towards the love and favor of God, if we fear the loss of other things or danger from them more than we fear God, we are not under the rule of God or His grace, but we are under the dominion of sin which reigns in our affections." It were endless to give instances of this power of sin in and over the affections of men. Self-love, love of the world, delight in things sensual, an overvaluation of relations and enjoyments with a number of other things of an alight nature will easily evidence it. When men have convictions of the irregularity and disorder of their affections, yet are resolved to continue in the state in which they are without the correction and amendment of them, because of some advantage and satisfaction which they receive in their present state, they seem to be under the dominion of sin. This, then, is the sole safe rule in this case. Whatever hold sin may have got on our affections, whatever prevalency it may have in them, however it may entangle and defile them, if we endeavor sincerely the discovery of this evil, and thereon set ourselves constantly to the mortification of our corrupt affections by all due means, there is not in their disorder any argument to prove the dominion of sin in us. 
It is also a dangerous sign of the dominion of sin when after a conviction of their necessity, it prevails to a neglect of those ways and duties which are peculiarly suited, directed, and ordained to its mortification and destruction. This may be cleared in some particulars. Number one, mortification of sin is the constant duty of all believers, of all who would not have sin have dominion over them. Where mortification is sincere, there is no dominion of sin, and where there is no mortification, there doth sin reign. Number two, there are some graces and duties that are peculiarly suited and ordained to this end, that by them and their agency, the work of mortification may be carried on constantly in our souls. What they are, or some of them, we shall see immediately. Number three, when sin puts forth its power in any special lust or in a strong inclination to any actual sin, then it is the duty of the soul to make diligent application of those graces and duties which are specifical and proper to its mortification. Number four, when men have had a conviction of these duties and have attended to them according to that conviction... If sin prevail in them to a neglect or relinquishment of those duties as to their performance, or as to their application to the mortification of sin, it is a dangerous sign that sin has dominion in them. And I distinguish between these things, namely, a neglect of such duties as to their performance, and a neglect of the application of them to the mortification of sin. For men may on other accounts continue the observance of them, or some of them, and yet not apply them to this special end. And so all external duties may be observed when sin reigns in triumph. Second Timothy 3, 5. Of the Dominion of Sin and Grace, Chapter 4, Hardness of Heart, spoken to is an imminent sign of sin's dominion, and it is shown that it ought to be considered as total or partial. Hardness of heart is either total and absolute, or partial and comparative only. Total hardness is either natural and universal, or judiciary in some particular individuals. Natural hardness is a blindness or obstinacy of the heart in sin by nature, which is not to be cured by the use or application of any outward means. Hardness and impenitent heart, Romans 2, 5. This is that heart of stone which God promises in the covenant to take away by the efficacy of His almighty grace. Ezekiel 36, 26. Where this hardness abides, uncured, unremoved, their sin is absolutely in the throne. This, therefore, we do not inquire about. Judiciary hardness is either immediately from God, or it is by the devil through his permission. In the first way, God is frequently said to harden the hearts of men in their sins and to their ruin, as he did with Pharaoh, Exodus 6.21. And he does it in general two ways. Number one, by withholding from them those supplies of light, wisdom, and understanding without which they cannot understand their condition, see their danger, or avoid their ruin. Number two, by withholding the efficacy of the means which they enjoy for their conviction and repentance, yea, and giving them an efficacy to their obduration, Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. And concerning this divine induration, we may observe that it is the severest of divine punishments in this world. 
that therefore it is not executed, but towards those that are habitually wicked, and so do of choice harden themselves in their sins. Romans 1, 26 and 28. For the most part, it respects some special times and seasons in which are the turning points for eternity that the condition of those so hardened is remediless and their wounds incurable. Where any are thus hardened, there is no question about the dominion of sin. Such a heart is its throne, its proper seat, next to hell. Second, there is a judiciary hardness which Satan, through God's permission, brings on men, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, and there are many ways in which he doth affect it, not here to be insisted on. But there is a hardness of heart that is indeed but partial and comparative, whatever appearance it may make of that which is total and absolute, whence the inquiry arises whether it be an evidence of the dominion of sin or not. There is a hardness of heart which is known and lamented by them in whom it is. Hereof the church complains, Isaiah 63:17. O Lord, why hast thou hardened our heart from thy fear, or suffered it so to be, not healing, not recovering our hardness? And these are sundry things which concur in this kind of hardness of heart, as, number one, want of readiness to receive divine impressions from the word of God. When the heart is soft and tender, it is also humble and contrite and ready to tremble at the word of God. So it is said of Josiah that his heart was tender and he humbled himself before the Lord. When he heard his word, 2 Kings 22:18 and 19, this may be lacking in some in a great measure and they may be sensible of it. They may find in themselves a great unreadiness to comply with divine warnings, reproofs, and calls. They are not affected with the word preached, but sometimes complain that they sit under it like stocks and stones. They have not an experience of its power, and are not cast into the mold of it. Hereon they apprehend that their hearts are hardened from the fear of God, as the church complains. There is indeed no better frame of heart to be attained in this life than that whereby it is a word as a wax to the seal, fit and ready to receive impressions from it, a frame that is tender to receive the communications of the word in all their variety, whether for reproof, instruction, or consolation, and the lack hereof is a culpable hardness of heart. Number two, there belongs to it an unaffectedness with the guilt of sin, as to the sorrow and repentance that it doth require. There is none in whom there is any spark of saving grace, but has a gracious sorrow for sin in some degree or other. But there is a proportion required between sin and sorrow. Great sins require great sorrows, as Peter, on his great sin, wept bitterly. And all special aggravations of sin require an especial sense of them. This the soul finds not in itself. It bears the thoughts of sin and the rebukes of conscience without any great concussion or remorse. It can pass over the charge of sin without relenting, mourning, dissolving in sighs and tears, and it cannot but say sometimes thereon that its heart is like the adamant or the flint in the rock. This makes many fear that they are under the dominion of sin, and they fear it the more because that fear does not affect and humble them as it ought. And it must be granted that all unaffectedness with sin, all lack of humiliation and godly sorrow upon it, is from an undue hardness of heart. 
and they who are not affected with it have great reason to be jealous over themselves, even as to their spiritual state and condition. Number three. Of the same kind in this measure is unaffectedness with the sins of others among whom we live or in whom we are concerned. To mourn for the sins of others is a duty highly approved of God, Ezekiel 9.4. It argues the effectual working of many graces is zeal for the glory of God, compassion for the souls of men, love to the glory and interest of Christ in the world. The lack hereof is from hardness of heart, and it is that which abounds among us. Some find not themselves at all concerned herein. Some make pretenses why they need not so be, or that it is not their duty. What is it to them how wicked the world is? It shall answer for its own sins. Nor are they moved when it comes nearer them. If their children come to losses, poverty, ruin, then they are affected indeed. But so long as they flourish in the world, be they apostates from profession, be they enemies to Christ, do they avowedly belong to the world and walk in the ways of it? They are not much concerned, especially if they are not scandalously profligate. But this also is from the hardness of heart, which will be bewailed where grace is vigilant and active. Number four, lack of a due sense of indications of divine displeasure is another instance of this hardness of heart. God does oft times give signs and tokens hereof, whether as to the public state of the church in the world, or as to our own persons in afflictions and chastisements. And the seasons hereof, he expects that our heart should be soft and tender, ready to receive impressions of his anger, and pliable therein to his mind and will. There are none whom at such a time he doth more abhor than those who are stout-hearted, little regarding him or the operation of his hands. This in some measure may be in believers, and they may be sensible of it, to their sorrow and humiliation. These things and many more of the like nature proceed from hardness of heart, or the remainder of our hardness by nature, and are great promoters of the interest of sin in us. But where any persons are sensible of this frame, where they are humbled for it, where they mourn under and cry out for its removal, it is so far from being an evidence of the dominion of sin over them in whom it is, that it is an imminent sign of the contrary, namely, that the ruling power of sin is certainly broken and destroyed in the soul. But there are other instances of hardness of heart which have much more difficulty in them and which are hardly reconcilable to the rule of grace. I shall mention some of them. Number one. Security and senselessness under the guilt of great actual sins. I do not say this is or can at any time be absolute in any believer, but such it may be as whereon men go on at their old pace of duties and profession, though without any peculiar humiliation, albeit they are under the provoking guilt of some known sin with its aggravations. It will recur upon their minds and conscience, unless it be feared. We'll treat with them about it, but they pass it over, as that which they had rather forget, 
and wear out of their minds, then bring things to their proper issue by particular repentance. So it seems to have been with David after his sin with Bathsheba. I doubt not but that before the message of God to him by Nathan, he had unpleasing thoughts of what he had done, but there are not the least footsteps in the story or any of his prayers that he laid it seriously to heart and was humbled for it before. This was a great hardness of heart, and we know how difficult his recovery from it was. He was saved, but as through fire. And where it is so with any that has been overtaken with any great sin as drunkenness or other folly, that he strives to wear it out, to pass it over, to forget it, or give himself countenance from any reasoning or consideration against the special sense of it and humiliation for it, he can, during that state and frame, have no solid evidence that sin is not the dominion in him. And let such sinners be warned who have passed over former sins until they have utterly lost all sense of them, or are under such a frame at present, that they recall things to another account, and suffer no such sin to pass without a peculiar humiliation, or whatever be the final issue of things with them, they can have no solid ground of spiritual peace in this world. Number two, there is such a dangerous hardness of heart where the guilt of one sin makes not the soul watchful against another of another sort. Wherever the heart is tender, upon a surprisal to sin, it will not only watch against the returns thereof or relapses into it, but will be made diligent, heedful, and careful against all other sins whatever. So is it with all that walk humbly under a sense of sin. But when men are in such a state, they are careless, bold, and negligent, so as that if they repeat not the same sin, they are easily hurried into others. Thus was it with Esau. He was wroth with the seer that came unto him with a divine message, and smote him and put him in a prison house, for he was in a rage. Second Chronicles 16.10 A man would think that when he was recovered out of this distemper, it might have made him humble and watchful against other sins. But it was not so, for it is added that he oppressed some of the people at the same time. And he rested not there, but in his disease he sought not to the Lord, but to the physicians. Verse 12. Unto persecution he added oppression, and to that unbelief. Yet notwithstanding all this, Esau's heart was perfect with the Lord all his days. First Kings 15.14 That is, he had a prevalent sincerity in him notwithstanding these miscarriages, but he was doubtless under the power of great hardness of heart. So is it with others in the like cases, when one sin makes them not careful and watchful against another. As when men abstain themselves with intemperance of life, they may fall into excess of passion, with their families and relations, or into a neglect of duty, or take any other crooked steps in their walk. This argues a great prevalency of sin in the soul, although, as we see in the example of Esau, it is not an infallible evidence of its dominion, yet of that nature it is wherewith divine peace and consolation are inconsistent. Number three, when men fall into such unspiritual frames, such deadness and decays as from which they are not recoverable from the ordinary means of grace, it is a certain evidence of hardness of heart and the prevalency of sin therein. 
It is so whether this be the fault of churches or of particular persons. The preaching of the word is the especial divine ordinance for the healing and recovery of backsliders in harder life. Where this will not effect it in any, but they will go on forwardly in the ways of their own hearts, unless God takes some extraordinary course with them, they are on the brink of ruin and live on sovereign grace alone. Thus was it with David, after his great sin, there is no doubt but he attended to all ordinances of divine worship, which are the ordinary means of the preservation and recovery of sinners from their backslidings, howbeit they had not this effect upon him. He lived impenitently innocent until God was pleased to use extraordinary means in the special message of Nathan in the death of his child for his awakening and recovery. And thus God will deal sometimes with churches and persons where ordinary means for their recovery will not effect it. He will by sovereign grace, and it may be by a concurrence of extraordinary providences, heal, revive, and save them. But where this is trusted to, in the neglect of the ordinary means of healing, seeing there is no direct promise of it, but it is a case reserved to absolute sovereignty, the end may be bitterness and sorrow. I have been reading some excerpts from the Dominion of Sin and Grace, from the works of John Owen. This is Tom Sullivan, the narrator for the Chapel Library, Grand Rapids, Michigan. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they 
To admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.